We're going to look at Romans 1, 16 through 17. My hope and desire with it being two verses is that I don't preach as long as I did last Sunday. And so um, this morning, though, before we get into it, I, you've probably already made it your way there. We're going to read it in just a second. But before I get into that, I, I wanted to discuss this idea of themes. Uh, this isn't something that I pick up well on. Uh, maybe it's because I'm, uh, I'm a male and I just don't understand themes well. But themes is something that we see in all areas of life, uh, particularly in, in stories, books or movies. Uh, like if, if superheroes uh, stories or comic books or movies is your thing, uh, we would all understand and know that at the end of the story, most of the time, uh, I would almost argue like 99.9% of the time, the good guy always wins. Uh, maybe that's not your thing. Maybe uh, anybody watched John? Uh, John Wayne movies growing up or still watches them maybe uh, the thing about a John Wayne movie we watched them growing up uh, I remember the VHS tapes black and white and even some in color uh, the later ones and, and really what we saw in these stories is really two things always happened he always ended up getting the girl but he also always getting the bad guy right he he would win the battle with that one bullet shot he would just always have the quickest draw uh, That that's what the theme of these movies were but there's other themes in life there's themes that uh, really play a different part of life that, that we really apply even in our homes or in, in, in uh, events that we throw. And really what I thought about was my grandmother, uh, her kitchen, to be sp- specific. Uh, and maybe some of your kitchens look like this. That's, that's perfectly fine. But I swear that she has like a thousand chickens in her kitchen uh, from pictures or figurines and things of that nature. That's just the theme. The theme of her kitchen is chickens. I, I don't know why she landed that way. She doesn't own chickens. As far as I know, she doesn't like chickens. I don't know why she landed there. Uh, but that's the theme 10 months out of the year. The other two months of the year, her theme is Santa Claus. But not just regular Santa Claus. It can't be that simple. It is Alabama fan Santa Claus. And th- I'm telling you, they have about 50 of them. They keep them in a, uh, a certain place in the home throughout the year. But when Christmas time comes, that is the theme, right? They're big Alabama fans and they love Christmas. So that is the theme. But we also see it in other areas of life as well. Like uh, a few weeks ago when we had uh, Lottie and Tania's birthday, uh, we really had this theme for Lottie's birthday, which is I love you a latte, which is a theme that's playing off of her name and the fact that her mother and I love coffee. Uh, and, and so themes, though, the point I'm trying to get at is that themes expose a specific subject or give a particular setting or ambiance, uh, meaning that the, the theme is something that's center of, of the event or the movie or the circumstances or the decoration. See, the theme is it shapes everything. No matter what you're looking at, no matter what it is, the theme shapes everything. And this morning... What we're going to see in this text and what we're going to explore is that the gospel, much like these other areas of life, should shape everything. And so what we're going to see, if you're taking notes, uh, really that the true understanding of the gospel, that this theme of the gospel should shape three areas of our lives. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. So before we do that, let's look at Romans chapter 1, 16 through 17. Says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everything, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. Because it is your word, this is what our soul attention desires to be on at this moment. 
God, as we explore it now, Father, allow the words that I say and the explanations I use be ones that would uplift the meaning of the author and the meaning and the intent of you, Father. As we explore the gospel and we explore these three areas of the gospel and how it shapes our lives, Father, for those that know you, God, would you just allow this theme, this reality to become so prevalent in our lives that we would surrender and live for you in the way that you are calling us to. God, for the one that's here that does not know you, God, would the gospel, would the truth of your saving knowledge lead them to salvation. We pray these things in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. Romans is... uh, it's, it's a very interesting book. I know Caleb has preached and taught through it several times on different occasions. Uh, and many of you probably know some of the things I'm about to explore. But before we jump into the scripture itself, I just want to lay down some foundation of what's going on in Romans as a whole. Uh, really what we see is that Paul is the author of this letter. And if you could probably guess, he's writing to the, the church or the, the saints in Rome. So he's writing to Roman people. Uh, in this letter, uh, it's very difficult different than many of Paul's letters. Uh, Many of Paul's letters like Philippians or Galatians uh, or even 1 Timothy, Paul has this intimate connection with either the individual in which he is writing to or the church itself. Uh, What I mean by that is that when you look at Philippians, for example, Paul was one of the founding members of of the churches in Philippi. And he was there when the Roman uh, jailer comes to hit Christ in salvation and he establishes this church here with Lydia and some of the other people. The book of Romans is much different. Paul has never even met these people that he's writing to. And so as Paul is writing these letters to these Christians that he's never met, there's a lot of questions of why he's writing this letter or how he even got in contact with these people and various different things. But as we also look, what we see is that the first um, 17 verses uh, that the, of the chapter itself, of chapter 1, is really this introduction. Paul starts in verses 1 through 7. He gives this greeting. He, he's establishing who he is in Christ because, once again, they don't know him. And then 8 through uh, 17, he's really laying out the purpose of the book. And 16 and 17 stands out. And, and that's why we're just looking at these two verses rather than any of the other ones. It's because 16 and 17 really treat as this theme of the book. Not, not only the theme of this this chapter, but the theme of the book as a whole. Uh, though it's argued that maybe it's just the theme of the first five chapters of the book, but really these two verses is the theme of the entire book. And that's why I started off with this idea of themes in our life, because what we're going to be looking at is what Paul decided and felt the need to explore and to explain to these people that he's never met The theme is the gospel and the effect of the gospel on our lives. And so as we unfold and we look at these verses, what we're really going to be seeing is that the theme of Romans, and much like the theme of our life, should be the gospel itself. See, but the thing is, is as Paul is writing this letter, in this first chapter, he's really, uh, he's assuming in writing to believers. He's writing to people in the church of Rome. Uh, and so he's writing to these individuals. And so what we actually don't see in these first 17 verses is a clear explanation of the gospel. Though Paul goes on to unpack this throughout the entire book and does a fantastic job really through the first five books of the Bible, of, of Romans, he really unpacks what the gospel is. And he does it in a specific format that, that I think we've, I've explored 
many times from the pulpit here, and I, I think the churches walk through this, and this is something we do with the students. And it's really this formula of God, man, Christ response. That God is perfect. God is holy. God is the creator of all. He is righteous. If you were here this morning in Sunday school as you walked through Romans, like I think most of us did, this is really what we saw in Romans chapter 1, 18 through uh, the end of the, uh, the chapter there, is that God is this perfect and holy creator that is righteous, and because He is righteous, He is also just, and being just, He has to judge the sinfulness of man. And that's where the issue of mankind is, is that we are all sinful, falling short of the glory of God. And He has revealed Himself to us through His creation. So therefore, we're all accountable to Him. But in Christ Jesus, there's this redeeming work, which we're going to explore later, this redeeming work of His sacrifice on the cross so that we could respond and believe and trust in Him. And in doing that, would have eternal life through Christ Jesus. See, the reason why I wanted to lay that out before we get into the thing is that's the, the centerpiece of what we're going to be looking at this morning is the gospel itself and what that is and how we apply it to our lives in everyday situations. But the reality is Paul is assuming that these believers knew this. And much like our own lives, you know this. You understand this. You know this to a, a T in your life. You know it well enough to trust and believe in Him. And if you don't, that would be my prayer for you. Is that if you don't know Christ, you would come to know Him as we explore this. But really what we see in the main point of this text and really what we're going to unfold, this themes that we're going to unfold, is that the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. And this is because the believing, uh, this is because by believing they are made righteous through faith alone. And due to this, we see that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. So, as we explore these themes of the gospel, my question and my, what I would want you to ask yourself as we look at these two verses is how should these change everything in my life? How does the gospel, how does the understanding of the gospel shape my life? So if you're following along or taking notes, that's what we're going to see. Is that the true understanding of the gospel first and foremost shapes my devotion. It shapes my devotion. We're going to see that in the first part of chapter, uh, verse 16, if you would read with me. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. See, what we just explored and what we just expressed is that Paul is writing to a group of people that he's never met before. And though this is the case, uh, the case, what we should rightly understand is that Paul has a desire to preach the gospel to them. Really, when you look at verse 15, it says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also or, who are in Rome. So Paul is moving from verses 8 through 15 and he's explaining, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I want to preach the gospel to you and to those in Rome. And his reasoning is so that he would reap the harvest among you as you well as among the rest of the Gentiles. See, Paul's desire, and the reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, is because the gospel, as we're going to see, is the power of salvation. And Paul's desire is to proclaim the good news of Christ so that those that are in Rome would come to know Him. So Paul is just laying out this foundation. He begins by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
And as we reflect on Paul's life now, as, as uh, people that have the entire counsel of God's word, we would, we would say, well, duh, Paul, you're not ashamed of the gospel. When we look at Paul's life, we see that he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was stoned. We see that he was put in jail on various occasions. We would understand and rightly know that Paul is one that gave up his life for the namesake of the gospel and the namesake of God. So why is Paul sitting here writing to this group of people that he doesn't even know and declaring, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. See, there's various opinions and thoughts of why he would be doing this. Maybe there's some rumors going on against him. Maybe they're saying he's preaching a contrary gospel. Maybe they're saying that he's ashamed of it. We don't. We really don't know what is going on. We don't know why Paul finds this need to defend his case here. But what is clear and very, very simple this morning is that Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Meaning that Paul is convinced that the power of the gospel so strongly that he is willing to not only live a life that is transformed by the gospel, but to boldly preach the gospel wherever God would call him. See, regardless of why Paul is making this statement, regardless of the context that we just can't understand completely, what is true is that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel and the reality should be the same for us today is that as people that have come to Christ in salvation and have trusted in this gospel, we too should be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to explore that why that is the case in just a little bit, in just a moment. But before we get to that, I just want to ask some very simple questions for us to kind of get you thinking about, are you being ashamed of the gospel? And it really starts with that. Am I, am I truly unashamed of the gospel? Am I truly one that would be declared and explained to others as somebody that is truly unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? When I take a step back and I ask myself, do I live a life that of true devotion to God? See, the reality is that if you're unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the gospel itself is shaping your devotion it means that the relationships you have is not your soul, uh, your soul reason of being devoted. It means that your job is not your soul focus. It means that everything in life doesn't matter that is contrary to the gospel itself. It means that we would take life and put it through a gospel lens rather than taking the gospel and putting it through a lens of the life. Do I express the good news to those around me? See, one of the biggest ways that we can ask ourselves if we're ashamed of the gospel is asking ourselves a very simple question. And is that, that is, when was the last time I proclaimed Christ crucified to an unbeliever so that they may come to know Him and have redemption in Him? The reality is so many of us would be uh, just be terrified if we had to answer that out loud in front of the rest of the church. See, the question that still stands is, am I truly unashamed of the gospel? Does the way that I love my spouse and my children display the love that I have found in Christ Jesus? The forgiveness that I have found in Christ, does that relate to the way that I respond to my spouse, respond to my children, respond to my co-workers, to my friends, to my family? See, the reality and the question at hand is, do I, am I truly unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does the way I spend my time bring glory to God or does it make myself or something else idols? Does my commitment to my church truly display the fact that I have been saved into a body of Christ? See, the reality is simple. 
is that when we are shaped by the gospel, then our devotion changes from ourselves and the things around us to the sole purpose of glorifying God. And in that, we would be ashamed, unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we would be people that would allow it to shape every area of our lives, even to the point that we would be as Paul and say, I am not ashamed. Brothers and sisters, can you proclaim these same words of Paul and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? The reality is so many of us can't. And the reality is that so often in our lives we live in such a way that does not proclaim that we are unashamed of the gospel. But thankfully there is grace in Christ not only for the unrepented that turn to Him in first repentance, but also to the believer who trusts in Him on a continual basis in life. So if that is you, if you're a believer here and you don't, cannot truly say that I am unashamed of the gospel, then turn to Jesus. Turn to Him, ask for forgiveness, and turn to this, the reality of the gospel itself and allow it to shape your devotion this morning. The second thing we see in the last part of verse 16 is that when we truly understand the gospel, it shapes our dependence. That when we truly understand the gospel, it shapes our dependence. Paul goes on to say, For it is the power of God for salvation. Paul is making a bunch of statements here in these two verses. He begins by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And the reason why I'm not ashamed of the gospel is because it is the power of God for salvation. This is such an amazing thing. Uh, that this, the gospel itself is the power of God. Now, kind of put this in context. We're talking about an omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful, uh, omnipresent God that can be all where, all places at one time. We're talking about a God that is supreme to all things. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is uh, the greatest being there ever and ever was and ever will be. And Paul is expressing that his power is displayed through his gospel. See, one, one pastor put it this way. It says, the gospel is not advice to people suggesting that they lift themselves up. It is the power. It, it is power. It lifts them up. Paul does not say that the gospel brings power, but it's power and God's power at that. When the gospel is preached, this is not simply so many words being uttered. The power of God is at work. See, the reality is that when the gospel enters uh, anyone's life, it is though the very fire of God coming upon them, there is warmth and light in this life. See, the reality is the gospel is not just some words that we explain to an individual on the street or in our homes or over a dinner table. The gospel itself is the power of salvation and is what God uses to bring individuals that are, that are fallen and turned away from Him to salvation. There is no light idea of explaining the gospel. See, the, the gospel is an active power of God and the life of those who believe in Him. This is the sovereign and all-knowing and all-perfect and worthy and power of God. But power of God to do what? He goes on and says, For salvation. Isn't this an amazing reality that the gospel, this idea of that God's perfect and holy and is going to judge those that are unrepented, but man is sinful and fallen and turned away from him. But God intervened and turned, uh, laid down the life of his only begotten son so that we would believe and trust in him and doing that have eternal life. Isn't this power that comes through it such an amazing thing? 
that this isn't an aimless power that is just being exposed to the world around us, that this is a power that is geared towards the saving redemption of individuals, that they would be uh, redeemed by the blood of Christ. But who can be saved? See, we say the good news for this is the power of God for salvation, but who can be saved? It says, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to also the Greek. See, this idea to everyone who believes. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching in John fourteen six, where Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. See, the reality is the only way into the Father, the only way back into a relationship with the God that created us is through redemption that is offered through Christ Jesus. There is no other way to the Father except for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reality of that is that should be driving us to proclaim it to those around us. And though I'm going to get to that in just a moment, what we see in that is that this should drive us to proclaim the gospel because it's not up to us to save anyone, but rather it is the power of God that saves individuals through the gospel that we proclaim. So everyone who believes in Christ can be saved. But Paul goes on to say the Jew first and also the Greek. Though there's some historical aspects going on in this statement, uh, there's some very uh, intimate things about Jews and Greeks and Jews and Gentiles and all that. Uh, but to put very simply, the in biblical context, there were essentially two types of people. There were Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Greeks, however you want to word that. There was two types of people. There was the people of God and there was everyone else. So Paul, in making this statement, though writing to Jews and Gentiles, he's explaining that everyone who believes, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, social, economical status, backgrounds, or whatever the case may be, is saved through the power of the gospel. The gospel is, has no bounds. It has no uh, standards of stopping. The gospel itself is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It doesn't matter what their history looks like. It doesn't matter what their their past life looks like. It doesn't matter if they were in church for all their lives. It doesn't matter if they've never been in church before. The power of the gospel saves all who believe and trust in Him. So as we look at the idea that the understanding the gospel, truly understanding the gospel should shape my dependence for the unbeliever that may be here this morning, I would just call you to repent and turn from your sin. If Jesus is sitting and calling you to Himself this morning, I would just beg and urge you to respond accordingly because He loves and cares for you and He desires to save you. But for the believer, what does it mean that the gospel, a true understanding of it, would shape our dependence? It means that you can boldly proclaim the gospel means that you can be ashamed, unashamed of the gospel in the lifestyle that you live. It means that in your workplace, you can be unashamed of the gospel. It means at school, you can be unashamed of the gospel. It means in your family life, you can be unashamed of the gospel. It means that you can boldly proclaim the gospel no matter where you go. But ask the question, am I trusting in the power, to, in my own power to save others, or am I trusting in the power of the gospel? See, the reality is, though this does not give us an excuse not to be prepared, but it gives us a reassurance that when we feel inadequate in our presentation of the gospel, it is not up to us and it is not dependent upon us to save a single soul, but it is the power of God's Word and the power of the gospel that saves those who don't know Christ. So we can boldly proclaim the good news of Christ wherever we go. So the gospel shapes our dependence.
The last thing we're going to look at is that a true understanding of the gospel shapes my standing before God. It goes on in verse 17. It says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Though that may seem like a very, very simple statement, that is a wonderful wonderful gospel nugget that is a wonderful truth for us to understand this morning is that for in it meaning for in the gospel for in the gospel the righteousness of god is revealed there's a lot of of, of views and opinions on how to translate that i think it's very very simple is that in the gospel of jesus christ in the saving power of god in the life of the repented sinner then God no longer sees the unrighteousness of man, but rather sees the righteousness of His Son. That is a glorious thing for you and I that have placed our trust in Jesus, that God does no longer look at us and see a wretched, sinful, and depraved man, but rather sees one that looks like His Son and one that He has redeemed by His blood. So we can approach the throne of God with all assurance and all satisfaction and understand and know that we are His and we are His forever. See, when God saves lost souls with the power of His gospel, He no longer sees their sin, but rather He sees the righteousness of His Son. And that's because His Son took on the unrighteousness of man and became it. So that when He saw His Son, He saw our sinfulness and He poured His wrath out on Him. So therefore we can have forgiveness in Christ Jesus. The next thing he says, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There's a phrase, and it's a Latin phrase, sola fide, which simply means faith alone. It's uh, one of these five terms that was used during the Reformation about 500 years ago. And it simply was a time period where the Catholic Church was just teaching and telling uh, individuals that they could buy these indulgences. And they were declaring that you could be saved or you could save a loved one that was in purgatory or in hell. And so this, the Catholic Church in this time period, what they were doing was they were saying there was something other than faith that saved you. That you could spend this money, you can do this, you can plead enough, and you can do these things, and it would save you. And the, uh, an individual named Martin Luther, he's one of the reformers, and in this time period, he, he reads through Romans, he gets to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and he understands and sees that faith, the salvation is through faith alone and nothing else. Why is that important? Why is a small history lesson on faith alone important? It's because there is no cleaning up before we come to Jesus. That makes one worthy. Rather, it is simply placing your total faith in His finished work upon the cross. See, it is faith alone that saves us. And it is faith alone that we place in Christ alone so that we can be redeemed and that God will see our, His righteousness rather than our wickedness. See, the reality is very simple. is that faith alone saves anyone that trusts in Jesus and so when we go out and we proclaim the good news of Christ, we should not utter any words of correcting oneself or cleaning oneself up or doing something to save them. Rather, we should preach and proclaim the good news of Christ. And that is all you have to do is place your faith and trust in Christ and in nothing else. And in doing so, you are redeemed and be made righteous in Christ Jesus. 
So how do we apply that amazing gospel truth that God no longer sees all wickedness but His righteousness and this is through faith alone? First and foremost, He calls us to rest in your salvation. If you're here and you know Jesus, if you're here and you've been redeemed by the, the, the wonderful work of God and the blood of Christ, then you rest in the one that you have placed your faith in rather than the works that you might bring to the table. Because if you're depending on works to save you, brother or sister, you, um, unfortunately I have to tell you that you have no hope in that. The only hope that we have in life and death is God Himself. It also should, should cause us to see that His Son's righteousness rather than us, that God seeing Christ's righteousness rather than our wickedness should drive us and lead us to pursue holiness. See, this doesn't give an excuse to sin. This doesn't give us a reason to go out and live how we want to live, but rather this calls us to something greater and something holier because we have a God that is perfect and holy, that stepped out of heaven, stepped off His throne, became man, and lived a life we couldn't die to death we deserve. And in doing that, the one that was worthy of all was subjected to the evil works of man so that we could be redeemed in Christ Jesus. Our salvation should never be a license for us to sin, but rather it should be something that pushes us and drives us and shapes the way that we come and stand before God. That we would be people that is known as those that seek holiness rather than seeking sin. The last thing that I really want to explore in that is that we should allow the fact that God sees His Son's righteousness rather than your wickedness and my wickedness it should lead us to worship. So we were ending Sunday school earlier. I was talking to the, the college group and just expressing that there's a lot of reasons why we worship God. He's perfect. He's holy. He's creator. He's the one that has made all things. He's the one that has called us to, to His service and a lot of things. But so often, the number one reason why we really should just plead out and cry out and raise up the name of God and worship Him through the way that we sing, to the way that we listen to the Word being preached, to the way that we read God's Word, to the way that we live our lives, simply because He saved us. That He took men and women that were undeserving of His mercy and grace and He brought them to a place of salvation. And so this morning as we truly understand the gospel it really should shape the way it should really shape my devotion that we should be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ that it should shape my dependence that we would trust in the power of salvation rather than the power of self and that it should shape my standing before God that we would rightly understand that he sees us as righteous individuals rather than sinful, wretched man because we have simply placed our faith in Him. And this morning as we end with a song, my prayer is that we would come together as a congregation and we would allow this to lead us to worshiping Him with all that we are one last time before we dismiss. And as an individual here that may not know Christ, my prayer is very, very simple and it's that understanding the gospel would shape the way that you look at yourself and your understanding of the need that you have for Him and that you would surrender your life to Him and follow Him and give it all to Him because He is the only salvation you can have. There's no other way to the Father except through, through Christ. Let's pray.
to you Setting off on a one-way train To a place where they know my head and